Good morning. Just to piggyback on what Brett said, we got an SOS. We weren't scheduled to serve, but um, we have a connection, and they reached out and said, boy, we've got this, we've got tomorrow night, and we just don't have a bunch of people to serve, and we have a bunch of people who are going to need to eat. So if there's anything you can do about that, again, see you, Brett, or, yeah, contact information. So if you can pull that off, it would be great. Um, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans and as we step back and identify what the Bible is all about or what the Christian life is all about it's really helpful to understand what matters if you understand what matters then you can know whether you're making progress toward the goal or not as with anything Pretty easy to figure out what matters in basketball. Put the ball through the hoop. Easy to figure out what matters in football. The ball across the goal line, soccer, put the ball in the net. How about Christianity? What matters? Well, we find the Bible indicates that what matters, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Um, Faith, what we believe, expressing itself through love how we behave, faith expressing itself through love. That's what matters. And this is what Paul's pattern is in his writings. He starts with telling us what to believe, because that's the faith part. And then he goes on to tell us how to behave. That's the love part. Um, What we found as we got to the 12th chapter of Romans, it transitions from focusing on what we believe to focusing on how we behave. And the thing that he tells us is relative to starting to talk to us about what we're to do in order to reflect Christ. tells us about giving ourselves to God and being transformed in the way we think. And that transformation in how we think is going to impact how we behave. And it's to impact how we relate to others. We're going to find, as has been said, don't take revenge. What will be said next week, he'll talk about love. But it doesn't just influence how we relate to others. In this section, Paul's going to talk about how it influences how we relate to governments. And not just sacred governments, secular ones. Um, Look what it says. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 13. So Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Paul commands us to be subject to the civil authorities. To be subject means to be placed under. There's a measure of deference to one in authority. 
um, we're to be subject because of convictions about God. When we think about God, that is what is to encourage us to be subject, to place ourselves under governing authorities. We're to be subject because we recognize that others represent Christ to be subject to one another. That's really what's behind submission. It's to recognize that Christ is represented by other people. And so we place ourselves in a place of service to them. So biblically, we don't ascend into greatness. We descend into greatness. We don't be great. We're not great by lording it over. We're great by coming underneath and serving. It doesn't just apply to Christians it, or people in general. It applies in this text even to a secular government, which might strike us as a little bit strange and raise some questions that we're going to have to deal with. Um, in the beginning, what he says, there's two reasons to be subject, even to a pagan government. The first, Paul writes, is that no authority exists apart from God. That's what he says. There is no authority except from God. So God sets up governments, not just holy ones. Secondly, and even more shocking, authorities have been instituted by God. Um, pagan though Rome's government was, Paul is encouraging them to subject or submit to it as a divinely appointed authority. Since the civil authority, he writes to these people, is ordained by God to fail to render to it the appropriate submission is kind of to set oneself against God. Because if God puts them in place, then we are to understand that that's what has occurred. And um, when applied to Rome, this was really hard for Jews who lived at that time to swallow. It's hard, I think, for anyone to swallow. But at this point, being a subject nation to the Roman Empire, it was really Difficult for Jews at that time to swallow what Paul was saying. Uh, what he says in Acts 26, 12 through 14, Paul experienced, I think, firsthand the reaction of those who believed that submitting to the government of Rome was not only Unacceptable, but in some sense, I think what Paul would have experienced, it was unbiblical. Look at what he says, Acts 26, it's in your worship folder. I was going to Damascus, Paul writes, before he had come into a relationship with Christ, with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, O king, as I was on the road. He's explaining this to a, to a, a governing a king. He talks, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Um, real quick, we did a, a series on this. What does it mean to kick against the goads? Well, we know a goad is a cattle prod. 
So it has a sharpened point on it. And if you wanted to make animals go from here to there, you took out a goad and you stuck them in the flank. And then you, that's what a goad did. It forced people in a direction. They're not where they should be. Get back to where you should be. That's what a goad is. And Jesus appears to Paul and he asks him a question and then I think he answers it. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was on his way to blow up Christians in Damascus, not just in Jerusalem or Israel. Other Pharisees might have shied away from it. Paul said, bring it on. I think they're wrong, and they need to die. And um, he runs into Jesus. Jesus says, Paul, why do you persecute me? And then he, I think he answers the question. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Um Again, goads were prods. They were farm implements. And in Israel's history, when they were under the dominion of another power, that power didn't let them have swords or spears. The only implement they had to defend themselves were farm implements, goads. And so here's what we find in 1 Samuel 13. It talks about when they were under the dominion of the Philistines. It says, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines has said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So what they did, they outlawed blacksmiths in order that Israel wouldn't be able to arm itself. Okay. So while Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened, so they went with these farm implements, saying, boy, you know, this thing is really dull. I've got to get to the wheat. And they kind of wanted to get to the wheat, but they, that's not the only thing they wanted to get to. They wanted to arm themselves, and that's all they had. So what it says, um, the price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks. And I'm sure you're really going to take this down. Write this down. Okay. You know, I know mattocks and all those things you're really interested in. And about that, so, yeah, I'll, I'll go slowly. A third of a shekel for sharpening forks. Hmm, wow. Third of a, let's talk about a third. I'm, I'm just kidding. And, and for repointing goads. It was a third of a shekel to repoint goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So they, there was only two swords in Israel. The, West, the rest had sharpened Goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and Jonathan had them. So what it says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And the goad represents a, a means whereby the power of an oppressive nation could be thrown off. That's what you did. Use goads because you didn't have a sword or a spear. So Jesus is saying, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So what the, the sense is that, you know, if you, if you poke somebody in the flanks, person or steer, they're going to, you know, they're going to kind of do this. It doesn't feel good. A sharpened point in the backside is not a nice experience. So what you did, you would kick against it. And this is what Jesus said. He's getting goaded and the reason he's going to blow up Christians is because it's really hard for him to do that. What's he saying? I think a couple things that are interesting about Paul. He's a rare breed. 
I think probably he was the, I would imagine, not too many, maybe the only one in Israel who was a Jewish Pharisee and a Roman citizen. It was hard to be either one. A Jewish Pharisee, you had to go to school until you were 14. Then you hooked up with a rabbi for 15 years until you were 30. I think Paul did it more quickly because he was brilliant. Anyways, he spent a long time at the feet of Gamaliel. It was really tough to be a Pharisee. That was a political party in Israel. As you'll see, Israel was a theocracy. And so Paul, as an expert in the law, was like a lawyer or a senator, a government official. Um, again, with the theocracy, the law of God and the law of the land are the same. And we're going to see in a little bit why that's challenging in some places. But So he was a Pharisee. He was also a Roman citizen. That wasn't the easiest thing. You know, we can be Roman, American citizens if we're born in America or if, if we immigrate. We have to do some things. But in Rome, to be a Roman citizen was not easy. Not everybody was. Only the upper crust. And they could be Roman citizens by this. You know, just... By paying for it, but that's not how Paul became a Roman citizen. He did something, or his father or grandfather did something that Rome took notice of, and they rewarded Paul's family with citizenship, and it passed on. Maybe it was about tents. Paul was a tent maker. His father and grandfather were. Maybe they went out of their way to make tents available to the Roman army. We don't know. Anyways, but they did something. And so Paul was a Roman citizen as well as a Jewish Pharisee. And um, so so him being goaded again. So what's this all about, Mike? So what, what we're trying to land on is I think this was the deal. I think that Jewish Pharisees who were very intent on throwing off the yoke of Rome, said, hey, Paul, hey, Paul's a Roman citizen and a Jewish Pharisee. Anybody else? We're not Jewish Pharisees. We're Jewish Pharisees, but we're not Roman citizens. Paul's a Roman citizen. You know what I think he could do? I think that he could appeal to some people in Rome or to try to raise some type of interest in getting the heat off of us. So what they did, Paul, you know what? You really should talk to Rome on our behalf. And so he's, he's dealing with that because he is a Roman citizen, but he's, he's a Jewish Pharisee, so he has two loyalties. If he gratifies Jewish interests, he forsakes Roman ones. If he gratifies Romans ones, he forsakes Jewish ones. And so you know what he ends up doing, I think? Again, I, I, might makes sense to me. The reason he blows up Christians is both Jews and Romans don't like him. So it's a way he can make peace in himself. He could be really set and intent on blowing up Christians because it's a way that he can bring peace inside. It's a way that he could be loyal to Israel and to Rome at the same time. Um, I mention all this just to say that there was a strong zealot movement in Israel at the time, from the time Paul was a Pharisee 
up until the time 20 years later when Paul was writing this letter, Israel was really interested in pushing Rome off of their shoulders. They didn't want to have to pay the tax that subject nations had to pay. They resented it. They resented Rome for a lot of reasons. And we're going to talk about how dangerous the movement, the zealot movement was in Israel. Um, It's dangerous to merge church and state. Before we look at that in first century Israel, real quick, let's talk about it in pre-revolutionary United States. What happened is in North America in the 1600s, prior to the Revolutionary War, Puritans who had emigrated from Great Britain settled in the most beautiful part of our country, (laughs) where the most intelligent people come from. It comes from Massachusetts. Oh, it's where I'm from. (laughs) Don't laugh that loud. (laughs) Lori, I'm talking to you. You were laughing too loud. At any rate... um, And they were, because they were out from under, they were a great distance from Great Britain, they were kind of on their own. They could kind of do what they wanted. Their relationships with Native Americans in the Northeast were not good. They continuously took their land, and they generally disrespected their cultures and beliefs. In 1675 to 1676, there was a war. The Native Americans said, that's all we can stand. So they declared war on the colonists who were primarily Puritans, and and they had a war, and it was very costly. Uh, They said that about 20% of the younger male colonists died in this war. What happened? And you say, Mike, where is this all this going? It will make sense. Maybe. (laughs) In order to recruit young men to fight against the Native Americans, Puritan preachers taught the idea that these Indians were acting in league with the devil. These Indians, they, they are involved in devil things. And so that's why Puritan preachers then really made a big deal about this in order to stir up the young men to come and fight the Indians and, and fight the devil. Even after the war ended, Puritans continued to preach against Indians as being connected to the devil. Not surprisingly, they became a very devil-oriented society. The devil was everywhere. The devil did this. The devil did that. If you've ever seen or if you've read Arthur Miller's book, The Crucible, or ever seen the movie, it describes what happens when government and religion fuse. I grew up again in the Northeast, probably about six, seven miles from Salem, where you play football against them. They were the Salem. What do you think? What do you imagine their mascot was? The Salem witches. That's where they were, the Salem witches. And the reason for that is because of what happened, hundreds of citizens in Salem were accused of devil worship in 1692. And the government was seeking to impose restrictions so the government would make sure that the devil had no part of the colonies. And what ended up happening, it was disastrous what happened. Twenty individuals, mostly women, were put to death. Before that thing went 
by. It's dangerous when there's no separation between church and state. It's the same thing that happened in Israel in the first century. Israel was a theocracy and there was no separation between church and state. Absolutely none, like Iran. Now, there's no separation between church and state. There was a zealot movement growing up in Israel. The zealots favored, get rid of, let's go to war with Rome. Let's get them off our back. Uh, they believed that God would deliver Israel with the sword, just like the old days. You know, where somebody tried to attack Israel and, and God showed up and he caused them to be killed. And one time, 185,000 Assyrians died from a plague overnight. And so what they felt is that we're going to call upon God and he's going to do this. And there was one guy in particular, uh, John of Giscala, who was a um, leader of the zealot movement in right a couple of years after Paul died. Uh, this guy, John, he was surrounded in the north of Israel by a bunch of Roman soldiers and he got away. And he fled south to Jerusalem. What he did, he entered the temple and kind of took it over. And this is what he did. He said that he was a God-sent Savior that, that had come to save his people from the Roman army. That's what he said. And he set himself up in the temple. And what ended up happening, he proclaimed that God would never allow Jerusalem to fall into Roman hands. So all kinds of people flooded into Jerusalem. And then the Romans came, and they built a siege. And the siege lasted a couple years. They burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. 73 A.D., there was a resistance movement, Masada. These individuals up on the, up on the top in 73, they were killed. Um, the result of the lie, the result of assuming over a million individuals in Israel died and another 97,000 were taken prisoner. Um, what we saw, and this, why would God allow something like that? That's what I'm sure they were wondering as they, the siege removed water and food and it was terrible. What a terrible devastation. What Jesus ended up saying, and this is where we see God is in control of what's happening. It looked like God must have slipped up, but he didn't slip up. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what Jesus said, God has determined that this is going to happen. It wasn't a mistake. It didn't, wasn't allowed. God caused it. And what Jesus indicated, that there was going to be a devastation, but what would happen, it would benefit Gentiles. I wonder, and I have a sneaking suspicion, that when Paul ended up on his way to Damascus after Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What ended up happening, um, he got knocked off his horse, and he ended up embracing Christ and understanding that he was the Messiah. And what ended up happening is that he, um, Jesus talked to him and revealed to him what the good news is. And as we've been looking at, he revealed it to him 
so that he could reveal it to us. Us. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, a brilliant Jew who was over those who moved into the Roman Empire. That's what God was doing. He caused there to be problems in Israel so that Israelites who embraced the Messiah would go into the Roman Empire. And because that happened, here we are 2,000 years later talking about Jesus Christ, aware of the gospel. That's all because God knows exactly what he's doing. But I wonder if Jesus had told Paul about what was going to happen. Because here's what Paul had said in the end of the 11th chapter. He said... um, To them, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Here's what Paul knew, and I think it's because Jesus told him. Jerusalem is going to be overthrown. Gentiles are going to benefit. At the time when God is done waving in Gentiles, he's going to say stop. And he's going to turn back to his firstborn, Jews. Let's say if you're Gentiles, you're Jews. This is where we are now. At some point, and it began with the sacking of Jerusalem, he's going to go, because he hasn't turned his back on his firstborn. I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know when it's going to be, but it's going to happen. When God takes a child to himself, he does not forsake that child. Never. God does not forsake those he selects and calls. Good news? Really good news. Really good news. Paul knew that God had not abandoned the Jews. Writing in the mid-50s, He was aware of the growing zealot movement. One of the reasons he urged them to be subject to Rome is because he knows what's going to happen. Rome is not going to stay in power forever. He knew it. It wasn't God's purpose to overthrow Rome. It was God's purpose that Rome would destroy Jerusalem temporarily. There will come a time when this stops. And he'll call his firstborn back to Jerusalem. Temporary captivity would give way to redemption. But Paul knew God's the one in control. Even secular governments like Rome, they're not acting in a way that frustrates God. God is never frustrated by the way a government acts. He's too powerful. Does he agree with him? No. Does everything fall within the confines of his purposes? Can we frustrate God's purposes? Anyway, can Democrats frustrate God's purposes? Can Republicans frustrate God's purposes? The answer is no. Can't. Can Romans? No. Iranians? No. Greeks? No. Anyone? No. You know why? Because God is God. We don't understand everything he does. All we understand is that at the end of the road, we will see God giving mercy and we'll go, boy, is he merciful. That's at the end of God's purposes, we see mercy. 
being extended to individuals who didn't believe that they should experience it. Paul goes on in verse 3. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do its good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul argues that secular governments perform sacred duty by punishing evildoers, rewarding those who do good. He emphasizes that those who do what is good have no reason to fear the government. And the question is, why would Paul, because not all governments, that doesn't seem to be the case. They don't reward good. They kind of punish good. Why would Paul make this kind of point when there seems to be so many experience? He experienced some things. I think a couple reasons. One is, you know what Paul's ultimate purpose was? He wasn't as concerned about the 60 or 70 years of this life. You know what Paul understood? No joke. Eternal life is real. That's what he knew. And what Paul understood, if you weigh eternal inclusion against 40 or 50 years of difficulty, and what Paul, so when he thought about things, he weighed it against the reality of eternity. You know what the deal is? Through faith in Christ, we're going to be alive. No joke. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, we're going to be out of these bodies into immortal bodies. We're going to be with Him. Paul understood that. He was called up to the third heaven, saw things that we can't see, heard things that we can't hear, Maybe he heard Jesus say, I'm going to tell you about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, Paul. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to have you be the one. Yeah, maybe he did that. I think he did, perhaps. Anyway, um, what we know then is Paul was really interested in the, the progress of the gospel. And if he is seen as someone who is planting seeds of rebellion against Rome, what's going to happen? Christians are going to get booted out of Rome. And if Christians get booted out of Rome, what's going to happen? Gentiles don't get to hear the gospel. That's why Paul, he wasn't in favor of slavery. But he said he didn't overturn slavery. He wasn't in favor of suppressing women. Although he didn't fight for that. You know what Paul fought for? The gospel. You know what his purpose was? that we would understand the good news. And the reason why he wanted to do it, no joke. When we believe it, that Jesus came to open the doors of eternal inclusion to people, even people like Gentiles who don't keep the rules, if we believe that, we are going to be where Jesus is. That's what Paul wants us to understand. And he wants us to believe it. Because if you believe it, then you are a believer, and you're going to be where he is. That's what we focus on. Um, the second reason Paul was kind of more committed to the gospel, the second reason, too, 
is he understood that Roman leaders, and he, you know what he calls them? He calls the Roman leaders God's servants. Not just that, he calls them ministers of God. Here's what Paul understood. It says in Isaiah, The Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, Cyrus was the Persian king, was not a Christian. <laughs> he was a pagan. And you know what God called him? He's my anointed one. Um, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings. And Cyrus was a pagan king. God directed him to do his will. You know what Paul's saying? Ruling authority should be obeyed because God has ordained and appointed governing authority. It follows that those who resist the authority oppose what God has ordained. Um, Look what it says in verse 5, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Christians pay taxes because of their knowledge of the place of civil authority and the divine purpose, I guess. So there's a reason to pay taxes. It's how the government functions. And as we pay taxes, we are contributing to what God has put in place. That's what Paul is telling them. And, and Rome really taxed debtor nations. Really, really put a heavy tax. And what Paul is saying, pay up. Don't push that off. Um, Paul is aware that what leaders receive from people is an entrustment to them. And what he understands, when leaders take things given to them in their place of jurisdiction over people, God notices what they do with the money. He notices because God puts governments in place. And he doesn't just put them in place and wipe his hands of it. He puts them in place and observes. There is an accountability that comes with being in leadership. It might not be experienced in this time period, but it exists. Last verse, look what it says in Micah. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. What it's talking about is the moral kind of health or sickness of Israel at the time. It was decadent. Moral flatliners. People were lying in wait. It's just everybody who had a bad cause, they were, it was awful. It was awful. Why? Look at what it says. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. They're really good at evil. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. 
Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Here's what it's saying. Here's what's going on. The people are really in disarray. And what God does, he looks at the reason and he looks at the judges who accept bribes. The rulers who enforce their will because it's their will. And the great people, what he says is there is a watchman watching those who lead. And there will, I don't know what it looks like, but there will be an accountability. Why would he stress this? It's not always just under government. But it is not in our job description to try to balance the scales. That's God's job description. And he will do it. He will do it. The world resists this knowledge. doesn't believe it. The righteous rely on it. God will balance the scales in his time. That means we don't have to take revenge. We can appeal our cause to God, give it up to him. When defrauded, when things happen that we don't agree with, we can say, appeal it to him. God, here it is. This is not right. You'll balance the scales one day and I offer this up to you. And then what we do is we do our best to be subject to the governing authorities, understanding that one day God's going to balance the scales. Brett, come on up. I'm going to have you do something. This is really uncomfortable. Take your arms. Take your hands. Let them hang limp at your side. Just try to do that. Let them hang limp. This is what it means to be still. Let your arms hang limp at your side. Here's what God says. Be still and know that I am God in the middle of social catastrophes, in the midst of political catastrophes. Here's what God says. Be still. You're going to call on the phone. You're going to make a list. You're going to type on your computer. Don't do that first. First, do this. Let your arms hang limp at your side. And this is what he would tell you. Know this, God says. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. At the end of the road, you will see my mercy. It's not up for question. In a little bit, there's things you're going to do. But he says first, be still. And know I am God. Okay, you don't have to do this. God, I know it feels really creepy. (laughs) God, um, thanks for what you say.
to us that you're not in a tizzy. You're not confused. You're not at your wit's end. You're accomplishing your purposes. What you tell us is be still. There's things you're going to ask us to do. But the first thing you ask us to do is to be still and to recognize what you say. You'll never cast us adrift or leave us behind. You're accomplishing your purposes. So I'd ask that we would connect with you. Connect, then correct. There's things we have to change, but we connect, then correct. It's connection with you, then correction. That's the, that's the order of things. I pray that you'd help us to do that, to find rest, and know that you're God. In Jesus' name, amen.